You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Russia's future moves outlined in the Bible by Bible Prophecy. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by ChristadelphianVideo.org. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has dominated the news and it's highlighted concerns about President Putin's plans to dominate the whole region bordering Russia and the distinct possibility that current events will lead to World War III. However, the Bible has a clear message which is so relevant to our times. It speaks of a growing confederacy of nations to the north of Israel and a coming invasion of Israel leading to the battle of Armageddon centered around Jerusalem, which in effect will lead on to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth the long-expected return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth to judge the world in righteousness. And we read of that in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. The question for us is, will we be ready? Now this is an excellent episode. It was given at the Southport Ecclesia in Queensland by our friend and brother Klaus Papowski back in March. Uh, this year, 2022. Hope you enjoy it. No doubt I don't need to remind you how this year began. The new year began with the spectre of war in Europe. As Russia amassed its troops and armaments on the border of the Ukraine. And then on February the 24th, they in fact moved into the Ukraine and commenced all-out war, which has been the headlines in the news for ever since February the 24th. And in fact, that's involved just about everybody in the world. It's engulfed almost every nation, one way or another, with the Western nations applying sanctions against Russia and um, supplying Ukraine with arms. And it's plunged the world into a whole range of instability in different ways and creating a huge chasm between East and West reminiscent of the Cold War and of the Iron Curtain. And the whole world economy has been impacted by that, already battered by the pandemic. Now it's also uh, contending in regard to being, being impacted by the sanctions and the fallout from the sanctions. And looming as a shadow across the landscape of the whole world is the p- potential for an economic meltdown as the world economies continue to be affected around the, around the globe. And Russia continues to tighten its screws on the Ukraine as it threatens to turn off gas to Western Europe as well. So we will we'll ask ourselves the question, what is the meaning of all these current world events about Russia, about Europe, about the world? Well, as Christadelphians, we've been watching the world scene. And we believe that current world events are an evident testimony 
to every thinking man and woman that some great change in the world is going to happen. Some great change in their human affairs needs to take place. And in fact that they are fulfilling Bible prophecy. So the Bible itself was a book written over 2,000 to 3,000 years ago and it contains predictions of the more significant events in world history. It's a guarantee of Bible truth as it shows the unfolding plan that God has for the earth. You know, there's approximately 600 major events predicted in the Bible, many of which have come to pass. So to us as Bible students, Christadelphians as Bible students, what's happening in the world today is no surprise. The Bible has clearly outlined the future of Russia, the future of Ukraine, and of other nations in the world, such as Britain and America and uh, the world in general. It's been recorded in very graphic, political and geographic terms, where these changes that we're seeing will take place in the, in the world. And it's a prelude to Armageddon, not the Armageddon of Hollywood, but the biblical Armageddon, which we'll go into in some detail later on. The very fact that we're seeing the problems that we are shows that the greater predictions of the Bible uh, are coming to pass, involving all powers, and the rest will only be a matter of time. So, what we're going to look at today is a brief review of the current crises, just to have a bit of an overview of that. What is Putin actually up to? What's he trying to achieve by invading Ukraine? And then what, what, what does the Bible say about Russia? How does this impact on Bible prophecy? Because we believe that Russia is actually named as a nation in the Bible. We'll demonstrate that from this very reading of Ezekiel 38. So we saw some of the so-called Russian diplomacy earlier in the year when there were negotiations between America and Russia to try and get Russia to back off from the Ukraine. And obviously the diplomacy wasn't working as they walked off the stage in disagreement. And Russia kept on putting the pressure on. And we could see the Russian troops building up armaments on the borders of the Ukraine. And there was the crisis happening where more Russian troops and tanks and armaments were sent off to the borders of Ukraine. Till eventually, on the 24th of February, Russia decided to initiate an invasion. And we've been seeing that happening and unfolding on the world scene before our very eyes. And here's the crisis happening between Russia and the Ukraine involving the Western nations as well as they endeavour to put pressure on Russia to back off and to get out of the Ukraine. So the question is, what does the future hold for us as men and women on the globe? Is it really going to end up in disaster? Is it going to end up with a, a Hollywood style of Armageddon? We believe that God is in control and that Bible prophecy is there for a reason. So in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17, the prophet has this to say, that the living may know that there is a God and that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and he sets up over it whomsoever he will, including the basest of men. Again, in Amos chapter 9 and verse 7, 
Amos has this to say concerning Bible prophecy. He says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So Bible prophecy is there to tell us what's happening in the future and also let us know that it's in God's hands. God is in control and he's bringing about his plan and purpose for the earth. Again, in Acts chapter 17, Paul had this to say when he was speaking to the Athenians on Mars Hill. He says that God that made the world and all things therein hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So God has planned out from amongst all nations that have come from one man, as the ESV puts it, which was Adam, all nations have come from one man and he's determined the times appointed and he's determined the boundaries, the bounds of their habitation. So in everything that's happening, the question often is asked, is the Russian bear dead? And we've been seeing, of course, that the Russian bear isn't dead. He's been hibernating since 1991. And he's certainly not dead. He's out to re-establish his, his former empire. So one of the results of the combined attack on Iraq in 2003 by America and Britain was that it spurred Russia to the conclusion that the world is not a safe place with just one superpower. And as a result, Russia has been on an active campaign since to woo, woo back the former states within the ambit of its control, to bring them back under the control of Russia. So over two decades ago, on the eve of becoming interim president of Russia, Vladimir Putin published his Millennial Manifesto. And his concern was that with the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, he considers that to be the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, and he was determined to address that. So following the collapse of, of communism and the chaos of the Yeltsin years, this was a blueprint that, that, that Putin had for restoring Russia greatness. And the key was the restoration of the power of the state, whose monopoly of violence had been challenged in the 1990s. And by a combination of the uh, politically ambitious oligarchs, media barons and regional governors, he was going to work through them, Mr Putin no doubt, no doubt feels that he has all but completed his project. So here's a vision. A vision of a greater Russia. Vladimir Putin cherishes a vision of a greater Russia. His goal is to re-Sovietize Russia. Not in regard to the USSR, but under the domain of Russia itself. And it's been published, declared by him quite clearly in his manifesto. So he pursues the Eurasian dream through dominating neighbours. So in the Huffington Post it records the fact that as a counterweight to the European Union, Russia's Vladimir Putin is pursuing an ambitious dream rooted 
in the memories of Soviet glory, the Eurasian Union. It's a strategy to pull former Soviet satellite states back into Moscow's orbit through a combination of incentives and threats and embattled Ukraine, a huge country of 46 million people, has lain at the centre of the game plan. He goes on to say, Putin has put the Eurasian Union at the top of his presidential agenda, voicing hope that the new grouping could be become a major economic powerhouse on par with the European Union. He has sought to lure ex-Soviet nations with cheap energy and loans, whilst also expanding his military presence in these countries whenever he can. So this is his aim. He intends to continue trying to restore other nations back in to the ambit of Russia. So the National Post has this to say, Putin's mission is restoration. First restore traditional Russian despotism by dismantling its nascent democracy, and he's done that very successfully, and then having created iron-fisted stability, then march. Using the 2008 war with Georgia to de detach two of its provinces, returning them to the bosom of Mother Russia, then pressure Ukraine to reject a long-negotiated deal for association with the European Union to draw Ukraine into Putin's planned Eurasian Union as the core of a new Russian mini-empire. Putin wants Ukraine back. Without Ukraine, there's no Russian empire. Putin knows that, which is why he keeps ratcheting up the pressure. And that's the reason why Putin wants Ukraine. For a number of reasons, it's one of the the breadbaskets of the European area. It supplies a lot of food for the food chain of the, the, the European countries, as well as Russia. It's very rich in mineral resources. You may be aware that as a result of the pandemic, which commenced in 2020, the COVID pandemic, there's been a major shortage of supply of semiconductor products in the world, of microchips. This has been impacted even more by what's happening in Ukraine because Ukraine is the major source of neon, which is a gas that's used for the manufacture of microchips. So microchips are now even greater, uh, in, in greater demand. So the Russian bear, one cartoonist put it this way, of course he's hungry. He's been hibernating since 1991 and he's after the Ukraine rich in resources, rich in food supply, and he wants it in the ambit of, of the, the Russian domain. And the Bible actually predicts that Russia will take over the Ukraine. It will be in the ambit, as well as other nations, in the ambit of, of Russia. And this is why there is now war in Ukraine. So what we want to look at today is the fact that Russia is named in the Bible. The Bible actually names Russia along with other modern nations who will shortly be involved in the Battle of Armageddon. They're named in a conflict in the Middle East. It describes the time of the invasion. The invasion. It describes the place of the invasion. It describes 
the decisive battle that will take place and it describes the victor. So we want to look at this. Firstly, Russia, named in the Bible. The place where it's going to be is the Middle East. That's where the conflict will take place and it will involve all nations. The time of the invasion is after the nation of Israel has been re-established in the land and is in control of what is described in Ezekiel here as the mountains of Israel. Now that's very specific. It means that Israel needs to have possession not just of the ancient land that it once had, but control of the West Bank and of Jerusalem. That was actually predicted in 1955 by a Christadelphian Bible student. And then it goes, we're going to look at the, uh, the fact that this is the very place, the mountains of Israel being important, and that this leads to Armageddon, which is the decisive battle. Not the Armageddon of, of the Holocaust, of the end of the world, of Hollywood movies, but the biblical Armageddon that leads into the return of Christ and the kingdom of God on earth. So in Ezekiel 38, we're going to look at the subject, which is the invasion of Israel. We're going to look at when this takes place, that is, after Israel is established in the land, and the invader. It names Russia and a confederacy of nations under Russian rulership. It describes in verse 7 that this power described here is going to assemble together a number of nations and he's going to be a guard under them. We'll look at that term guard in a moment. So the timing is described as being in the latter days. So this chapter is not about things that happened back in 2000, 3000 years ago. It's about events happening in the latter days. Notice verse 8. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Again, verse 16, it describes the fact that thou shalt come, speaking of this northern power and its confederate nations, thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land, in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, and the heathen or nations may know me, when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. So it's describing when it's going to be in the latter days, and when the people of, of the Jewish people, Israel, are restored as a nation in the land, as we saw in verse 8, and repeated again in verse 12 that this northern invader comes to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. So that's the timing. The event is about a major invasion of the land of Israel to take a spoil as described in verse 12. He's coming to take a spoil. The result will be that all will know the Lord, as described in verse 23. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself 
and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Who is going to be this invader of the land, of the Middle East? Well, it's a large confederation of nations, as described in verses 1 to 7 of Ezekiel chapter 38. We won't read that, because we're going to go into a little bit of detail, verse by verse, as we come to describing who those nations are. It's going to be confederacy led by one named Gog. Look at verse 2. Son of man, set thy face against Gog. Now Gog means the one at the top. Describes a roof, somebody who has an overarching control of those under it. So it's just a title. Gog, but it describes him as being the prince of Rosh, which is Russia, and a nation that is turned back, and he comes from the north, as indicated in verse 15. Thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts. And we'll have a bit more to say about that later on. So who is this invader? Who is this one that's described here as Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and he's to prophesy against him? Well, it's actually better rendered as it is in the Hebrew and by the revised version, the New New American Standard Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, Rotherham, Moffat, the Amplified Bible, the Stepchildren, and many other translations. And it describes it not just as being the chief prince, but the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. So the actual Hebrew is there, displayed in verse 2. Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And another translation has the Prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, the New English, English Bible. And that's exactly how the Hebrew should be. The, new, the Hebrew English Interlinear Bible has the same thing. Describes it here as being of the land of Magog, the Prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. So in his book, The Origin of Russians, Bernadsky has this to say about this term Gog and the term Rosh. He says, the first time that Russia appears in print is in the 38th chapter of Ezekiel under the title of Rosh. Bocart in his Sacred History says, Rosh is the most ancient name under which history makes mention of the name of Russia. So there's no question this term, Prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal is talking about the nation of Russia. So Jesenius in his Hebrew Lexicons has this to say about Ezekiel 38. He says that it is, notice this, a proper noun. It's not just the word chief, it's not just there as an adjective or as a title. It's a proper noun of a northern nation mentioned with Tubal and Meshach. He says undoubtedly the Russians. So there's no question amongst the Hebrew writers and lexicographers who's being referred to here in Ezekiel 38. Undoubtedly the Russians, who are mentioned by writers of the 10th century under the name of Ross. Ungers in his Bible dictionary has to say, 
Ezekiel 38 and 39 deals with Gog, the prince on and, Ma- and Magog, his land, describe the actual invasion of Palestine by a great northern confederacy headed up by Russia. So that's the introductory to this chapter, Ezekiel 38. So here we have it. He's to set his face against the land of Magog, prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy concerning him. And there's no question that since Rosh refers to Russia, Meshach is, in history books, the most ancient name for Moscow, and Tubal refers to Tobolsky. So really what it's talking about is not just the Russia we know in, in Moscow, it's the entire east and west of Russia involving Tobolsky as well. Siberia is involved in this. All of Russia is involved in this. His prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy concerning him. So this is the Gog. And you'll notice the term Magog is in there as well. He is of the land of Magog. So what is Magog? Who is Magog? Well, according to Ezekiel 38, and according to uh, Jesenius, uh, according to Josephus rather, in his book The Antiquities of the Jews, and Herodotus in his history, the father of history by the way, he mentions that these were sons of Noah. And Josephus and Herodotus, there's a lengthy article on that, which I've only included a fraction hereof, uh, for because of time constraints, describing the migration of Noah's sons into the different parts of the world. And Gomer ended up in the area of the Gauls, which is in France. And Magog ended up in the area of Central Europe, which essentially is Germany, Poland, and the Ukraine. So this one described here as being Gog is of the land of Magog, and it's talking about Central Europe, which includes the area of Ukraine. And that's why we believe what's happening right now is in fulfilment of Bible prophecy. Whether it's on this particular push or later on, eventually Ukraine will come under the umbrella and the control of Russia. So Magog includes Ukraine. And that's why what we're seeing is relevant to what's happening today. So the current tense situation between Russia and the Ukraine is due to the Ukraine trying to join the EU and severing its religious ties to Moscow. He's described as being Gog of the land of Magog. And the Ukraine was the original um, homeland of the kingdom of the Rus. And Kiev was its first capital. So it really, historically, belongs to Russia in that sense. And Russia and Putin is aware of that. He's written articles about that, how that the Ukrainians really are part of the Russian nation. They belong. That's where the roots of Russia are. That's where it began. And he wants to reclaim the area of Ukraine for his own. So there's outlined in the red what is the land of Magog that Russia will eventually control. Not just the Ukraine, it'll take over that part of Central Europe as well as part of the confederacy of the nations that, will cut, that he will use to come into the Middle East to attack Israel, which will trigger the return of Christ and Armageddon. So here's Russia's confederacy. 
is described as being the chief, the, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, including Central Europe, Magog, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, in verse 3, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them, clothed with all sorts of armour, even a great company, with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Now notice in verse 5, the other nations, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Again, verse 6, Goma and all his bands, the house of Tagama of the north quarters and all his bands, and many people with thee. So not only is it Gog, not only is it Magog, not, not just Russia, he has under his umbrella Ethiopia, Persia, which is Iran, Libya, he has Tagama, which is Turkey, and Goma, which is France. So he has all of Europe involved, as well as Turkey, and moves into the Middle East with support from Libya, Ethiopia, and Persia. And interestingly, this term horseman in the Hebrew was used only firstly when the Persian Empire came into being. It's actually a Persian term. So it's interesting that Persia is involved in the, uh, the, the mix with, with Russia as part of the Russian Confederacy. Here's another map describing the nations here described in Ezekiel chapter 38. There's Gog, the one at the top, who is Prince of Rosh, Meshek and Tubal, Russia, Moscow and Tobolsky. He's of the land of Magog, Central Europe, has with him Tagama, Turkey and Goma, but is opposed by another nation which is described in verse 13, verse 13 as being Tarshish, the inhabitants of Tarshish. That's a subject all of its own, but very briefly, that's a reference to the Western powers, particularly under the leadership of Britain. And that can be demonstrated from Ezekiel, 37, uh, Ezekiel 38 and, and Ezekiel 27. So it describes this invasion in the Middle East of Russia moving down into the Middle East as described in verse, uh, let me just get a bit closer, I have to read my own writing here, verse 4, 8 and 16. So we saw that in verse 8, it's going to be in the latter days. Verse 16, it describes he's going to come against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days. So this confederacy under Russia, which involves the Ukraine, Central Europe, Tagama, which is Turkey, Goma, which is, is France, as well as Libya and Ethiopia and Persia, Iran. When they move in the Middle East, it's against Israel in the latter days. He speaks about an army of horses, a great company, in verse 9, it's going to be with many people with him. And in verse 15, describes a great company and a mighty army. So it's describing this collection of nations together under the umbrella of Russia. And very often we might ask the question, well, is this some sort of political alliance? Well, in verse 7, it says, 
Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. This term guard is the Hebrew word uh, which means mishmar, which means a place of confinement, a jail, a prison, or confinement. So it's actually speaking of the fact that here's Russia, which has a hold over other nations, and it does so by its military presence. It's doing it as a guard. It's controlling, he's confining, he's controlling them by either his might or by turning off the gas into Western Europe. So what about this nation uh, that's described here coming, this is the people gathered back into the land of Israel. The Israel of Ezekiel 38 in verses 8 to 13, who are they? Well, they're gathered, regathered from the nations, which is what happened in 1948. It's in the latter years, as described in, uh, in verse 16 and in verse in, in uh, verse 8 as well, verse 8 and verse 16, brought back from the sword, is dwelling in the midst of the land, the centre of the land, which has long been desolate. There are peaceful people dwelling securely. They're dwelling without walls. They don't have bars, neither do they have gates. And they've got gold, silver and acquired livestock and goods. In other words, there's spoil there to plunder. And Israel is very rich in resources, in gas, natural gas, off the coast of Israel. And it's a wealthy nation, possessing booty and great plunder, which is why Russia moves into that area to control it. As we said, it will be described in verse 8, in the latter years, a nation that's been regathered out of many people on the mountains of Israel. They've been gathered out of many nations, they're described as God's people Israel and it'll be in the latter days as described in verse 16. And so the very focus of the great crisis is on the mountains of Israel and that's the mountains of Israel. It's in the centre of the land, the West Bank, the area of Jerusalem uh, where the, the great crisis will take place. And there's a number of chapters in the Bible that all agree in regard to this prophecy. There's Ezekiel 38, which we're looking at. There's Daniel chapter 11, which speaks about the king of the north, and it speaks about the same time, the same place, the same people that are invaded, and the same result. Zechariah 14 speaks about the same event as well, with some added details about what's going to happen in regard to the changing geography of that area with a great earthquake. There's Joel chapter 3, which mentions the fact that this is the people that are brought back from captivity and that the nations are gathered against it. It's a time of war, a time when God will judge the nations. And Isaiah 14 speaks about the same event. They all speak about this location, the mountains of Israel as being the focus of the great crisis. That could not have happened before 1948. That could not have happened before 1967 when Israel recaptured the old city of Jerusalem and also in more recent times as they're, as they're reclaiming parts of the West Bank, which in fact have been gifted to them by Jordan over many years. So despite the controversy taking place, Jordan has given up and said, no, you can have it. 
So they're the mountains of Israel, the West Bank. And there's a coming storm described here in verse 9. Look what it says in verse 9. This northern confederacy of nations headed by Russia, including the Ukraine, Central Europe, including France, Turkey, and Libya, and Ethiopia, and Iran, thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. So it's like a storm that's going to happen on Israel, repeated against in verse 16 in regard to this northern confederacy. And there are other chapters in, in Scripture that deal with the same time period, such as Psalm 83, Isaiah 28, and Nahum chapter 1. So this is this northern confederacy coming down like a storm to plunder and to take a spoil in the land of Israel as he combines together the various nations as a confederate group of nations with him. Thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts. Notice that in verses 15 and 16. Thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts. <clears throat> thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. He's coming from the north parts. So when he's coming from the north parts, it's in relation to the land of Israel, which is where this event's taking place. And you can't go much further north than Moscow. When you're directly going from Jerusalem north, you come to Moscow. It's the north parts. <clears throat> the revised version says, you will come from the uttermost parts of the north in regard to verse 15. You can't go any further north than Moscow in regard to the inhabitable land of north of Israel. But there's going to be other nations involved, other nations that will oppose what's happening. As we're seeing already, there's a division between east and west. So in verse 13, it tells us there's a resistance that takes place, which we believe are the Western nations. It describes nations here as Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? So this is describing a number of nations here. There is Sheba, Dedan, the merchant of Tarshish, and the young lions thereof. And notice the pathetic response from these nations. Have you come to take a spoil? Have you come to take a prey? To carry away silver and gold? It doesn't describe resistance in the sense of, of military opposition. And we're seeing that to a degree, aren't we? with what's happening in the Ukraine. The Western nations are loath to get involved militarily in the Ukraine for fear of what Putin might do, because there have been threats of nuclear war uh, from Putin in regard to that. So the response is, is a very lukewarm response. Have you come to take a spoil? But who are these nations? Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, the young lions thereof. Well, Sheba is the area of Saudi Arabia, Arabia, 
and Didan is the area of Oman, and that's where there is, of course, Western influence already in that area. The merchants of Tarshish is an ancient term that's used in Ezekiel 27 and Isaiah 23 to describe the power of Britain, Britain as a mercantile power. Oops, I got pressed something. And all the young lions thereof, and that's of course a term that's been used for the nations as Britain being the lion, the roaring lion, and the nations that have come from Britain as part of its commonwealth as being the young lions thereof. That's a poster, as was this a poster that was used in the First World War in regard to the empire needing men when they were appealing for uh, men to enlist to get involved in the war, in the World War. So it's describing the Western powers opposing the power of Russia. But the Bible goes on to speak about the destruction of Russia, not just dealing with the fact that it's coming down to the Middle East. God is going to, in fact, destroy Russia in the Middle East. Chapter 39 goes on to deal with more detail about that and actually uses the term that God will bury Russia in Israel. So in Ezekiel 38, verses 18 and 19, it says this, It shall come to pass at the same time when go shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, and God will intervene, and he will destroy the power of Russia. In fact, in chapter 39, he will bury Russia on the mountains of Israel. So what we're going to see is Russia, with a confederacy of nations, including all of Europe, Libya, Ethiopia, which is in fact the area of Oman. Oman is in fact two nations, north and south, and uh, Russia has ports, seaports, in the area of North Oman, which is very communist in its, in its uh, approach. South Oman is a bit more Christian in its approach, and there's a bit of contention between the two. So it's not Libya, uh, Ethiopia that we think it is, it's Oman, um, which is involved, and Iran. This confederacy will come to the Middle East and trigger what is known in the Bible as Armageddon. Now, this term Armageddon is loosely used in the world today for a catastrophe that blots out the world. It's the end of all civilization. We talk, they talk about Armageddon. There's movies made of it in Hollywood of utter destruction. That is not the Bible Armageddon although it will involve all nations and will involve catastrophic events. It's actually a term that comes from Revelation chapter 16. If you've got a Bible, I'd like you to turn there. Interesting term that's used in Revelation 16 about the Battle of Armageddon. In fact, it's the only place you'll find the word Armageddon. Revelation 16 and... Uh, Reading from verse 12. So Revelation 16 is about, it's, it's a vision that um, John, the apostle, saw of an angel with a number of bowls of liquid, of vials or bowls, and he pours them out in different places. And there are events happening as a result of that. And what we see in verse 12 is the sixth angel poured out his vial or bowl of liquid 
upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And he saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, mouth of the beast, and mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, not devils in the sense that we know it, the word demon in the Greek, daimonian, working miracles which go forth under the kings of the earth and of the whole world, the whole habitable world, as the word means in the Greek, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So what we're looking at is the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And then, interposed in that, in verse 15, is the return of Jesus Christ. Behold, says Christ, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Then it goes on to describe the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 16. And he, that is God, gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now notice that. It's in the Hebrew tongue. Why does it say that? For this reason, that the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But here inserted into the record is a biblical term, Armageddon, which is a Hebrew word right in the middle of Greek text. So that's significant. And we need to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean? Well, Armageddon is in fact made up of three Hebrew words. It's made up of the word Arima, which in the Hebrew means a heap of sheaves. The word Gi, meaning a valley. And the word Don or Dan, meaning judgment. So put together, Armageddon, Arima Gedon, means a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment. That's Old Testament language. So we need to go back to the Old Testament to find out what it means. And we find out what it means in Joel chapter 3. Come with me back to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 is speaking about the same time period as Ezekiel 38. It's a time when God's people have been regathered back into the land. And notice what he says in verse 2. I'll also gather all nations, all nations are involved, and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means God's judgment. So Armageddon is defined as a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment. And this valley of Jehoshaphat is in fact made up of these two words. Jehu, or the name of God, Yah, Yahoshaphat, Shaphat meaning judgment. So it's the valley of the judgment of Yah, which is God's name. He's going to bring all nations involved into that, into the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the location where Armageddon will take place. And that's just outside Jerusalem, the valley of Jehoshaphat. So it's Jerusalem, the mountains of Israel, that area that's been focused upon here. Come over to verse um, to verses 9 to 3. Proclaim you this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your ploughshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. 
So here are nations gathering together for war and they're converting the instruments of agriculture into instruments of warfare. They're diverting economies away from agriculture into the area of armaments. Goes on to say, verse 11, Assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen or nations as it should be, come all your nations and gather yourselves together round about, there cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord, that the heathen be weakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all nations round about. Now look at verse 13. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes, in the value of not decision, but as the Hebrew has it, of threshing. In the valley of threshing, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of threshing. So this is Armageddon, a remagedon, a heap of sheaves in a valley for threshing. It's when God brings all nations into Jerusalem to proclaim war. And they're going to divert their economies away from agriculture, building arms. And they're going to sanctify war. They're going to call it a holy war. So this is what we see in the world today. We are living in the latter days. Or, in other words, as other Bible passages have, the last days or the time of the end. I was going to go into um, Daniel chapter 11, but I think I might just skip over that because it's a bit detailed. What does the Bible prophecy expect of Russia? It expects there's going to be a ruthless, cunning leader. We'll see that. That actually comes out in Daniel chapter 11, which is the king of the north, a subject really all of its own. It's going to be a nation that is turned back to its old ways. It's going to be an expansion of territory and of influence involving all of Europe, Ethiopia, Libya and Iran. It's going to be a guard or a protectorate of confederate nations. And there's going to be a weakened West group of nations opposing it. And all of that will lead to the greatest event this world has ever seen. So one of the, our Bible students back in, 19, in 1848 wrote this in a book called Of Israel. He says, The future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. When Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, then let the reader know that the end of all things, as at present constituted, is at hand. The long-expected but stealthy advent of the King of Israel will be on the eve of becoming a fact. In other words, it'll usher in the Kingdom of God on earth. Zechariah 14 deals with the same event. Just very briefly, let me summarise what's said in Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 and verse 2 speaks about all nations being gathered against Jerusalem to battle, the city in fact being taken, two-thirds, in chapter 13 it describes the fact, two-thirds of the nation are wiped out, a third will be retained, 
and that the Lord will go forth and fight against the nations as he did in the day of battle. A reference back to Joshua chapter 10 when he fought in the day of battle. Then it says, His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. This was the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall, shall cleave or split in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. So there's going to be a catastrophic earthquake when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the time of Armageddon into Jerusalem and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, it will split into two and create the greatest earthquake this world has ever seen. Professors have said that an earthquake of the magnitude described in Zechariah 14 would demolish every building two storeys and higher on the face of the earth. But that's not the end, because that will bring in the return of the kingdom of God on earth. And the reason why I've mentioned that here, or mentioned Zechariah, is because in Acts 1, when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended from the Mount of Olives, in Acts 1 and verses 6 through to verse 11, his disciples saw him ascend into heaven. And the angel standing by said to them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. The word like manner in the Greek means it exactly the same way. So how did he go? Well, he went suddenly, he went personally, he went bodily, and he went visibly. And he's going to come back in exactly the same way to the earth. Suddenly, bodily, personally, and visibly. And when he does, he's going to set up God's kingdom on earth. So there's no question from the signs we're seeing in the world today, from world events, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Armageddon will take place. Russia will assemble a confederacy of nations, including the Ukraine. And it will come with a confederacy against the mountains of Israel. But Christ will return and he will redeem Israel and he will set up God's kingdom on earth, which will last for a thousand years. And then God's purpose that he planned with the earth will be fulfilled. Truly I live, he said in Genesis 4, in Numbers 14, verse 21. Truly I live, and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Or as he says in Isaiah 45, Thus saith the Lord God that created the heavens and the earth, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it, he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. Ladies and gentlemen, may I, may I encourage you to, to take up the message of the Bible, to look into Bible prophecy, consider the word of God and prepare yourself for inevitable events that will happen on the world, on, on the world scene, including the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you very much.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.